This is the Physical Activity Researcher Podcast, a podcast for researchers of sedentary behavior, physical activity, and sports. Join for a relaxed dialogue about research design, practicalities, and, well, anything related to research. Learn from your fellow researchers useful and relevant information that does not fit into formal content and limited space of scientific publications. And here is your host. Welcome back, everyone. This is Practitioner's Viewpoint, and uh, this is the second episode or second part of our podcast with Dr. Dusty Marie Narducci. Dr. Narducci completed her family medicine residency at Houston Methodist Hospital and Sports Medicine Fellowship at the Mayo Clinic. She is the only sports medicine physician in the United States with her certification of added qualification in primary care sports medicine in addition to her certification as an eating disorder specialist. Dr. Narducci also completed a fellowship at the University of Chapel Hill with Focused, which focused on faculty development. Her current roles include being a team physician for University of South Florida and St. Leo University in Tampa, Florida. As an assistant professor, she is a leader in academic medicine. Given her eating disorder and sports medicine speciality, she is a huge fan of educating all on the power of physical and psychological strength for gaining better long-term health. In the second part, we will discuss eating disorders, how to recognize them, what could be done to prevent eating disorders, and how to act if someone close to you is facing this problem. So welcome back, Dr. Narducci. Thank you, Lise. I was just thinking about how wonderful it was to talk to you for the first part. Such a great energy. So thanks for having me back. Um, So you... Uh, are a specialist in eating disorders and uh, what are the different eating disorders that you treat in your practice? Yeah. So even before I tell you that, can I give you some facts? Um, Yes. Approximately 30 million Americans and 70 million people worldwide are living with an eating disorder. That's an outstanding number. And 10 million men in the US will suffer from an eating disorder in their lifetime while eating disorders are actually the third most common chronic illness among adolescents in the U.S. And to make this even more complicated, only a very small number of these these individuals are underweight. So like less than 6%. So we're definitely missing stuff. You know, it's definitely underreported. So I would think those numbers are even more. So to answer your question, I treat all types of eating disorders from anorexia nervosa and its subtypes, atypical anorexia, bulimia nervosa, BED, which is binge eating disorder, and ARFID, which a lot of people are not familiar with, but is avoidant restrictive food intake disorder. So similar to anorexia without the body image focus or the the weight loss desire. And there's other ones that are a little less common, and I'm not even naming everything here, but orthorexia, diabulimia, which is kind of a coin you know, fun term for it. I don't know if fun's the right word, but a more of a like a media term for it. But the real term is eating disorders and diabetes type one and low energy availability states, um, which is red. So relative energy deficiency in sports, as well as female athlete triads. So those are just a few. Uh, the facts are uh, astonishing. I think it's, uh, I, I'm just thinking do you think that eating disorders have become more common if we are thinking about the, I don't know, how, how well recorded or documented they have been during uh, during different times, but like when we look back maybe 20 or 30 years, do you know what's the trend? 
So we definitely see a rise in eating disorders. Absolutely, we're seeing a rise, and especially in athletes too, which I think we'll talk about later. But are we asking more? Are we more aware of it? And that's why those numbers are going up and they were always there. I don't know, because when you add in social media and all the obsessions with fitness and diet culture for eating disorders to not become more prevalent, I I just don't think it's possible. So yes, I I think the trend is just steadily increasing and we're seeing it more in men and then also in, you know, various communities like LGBT and things like that too. So there's just so much focus on image and eating disorders. I think they get missed even more because when I went through those different types, you know, some, during someone's lifetime, they don't always stay in one diagnosis. I mean, it's a spectrum. So you'll see somebody who's, you know, in their teens, that's more restrictive and anorexia nervosa, and then they'll become an athlete. So they'll go down more of that orthorexia route. And then all of a sudden, you know, bulimia nervosa is kicking in. So you see this like change. It's definitely that fluctuation. Um, so you work as a head team physician in athletics. Are athletes overrepresented in patients with eating disorders, or is this just a common misconception? And are there any other groups of population that are overrepresented amongst your patients? So I think even though we want to believe that athleticism has this positive self-worth and athletes are particular, you know, athletes just never have eating disorders. They're so in tune with their body, you know, really couldn't be further from the truth. Um, they're actually particularly at risk for developing eating disorders. So some studies even show that the prevalence is significantly higher than the general population. So this is my favorite population, college athletes. You know, that's definitely where I build my career around. And it's it's astonishing what I see. You know, I think we just don't ask or we assume sometimes that there's nothing going on. So although the reported incidents of both disordered eating, which we'll talk about that term, and like diagnosed eating disorders are rising. From personal experience, I really think that these numbers are even higher because I sometimes have to ask again and again and again when so many people have maybe missed it and then finally get that answer. You know, if I didn't ask that six times, that person wouldn't be included in that incidence number, right? So I think I see it a lot more, but I'm also looking for it. Okay, um, I just wanted to ask you uh, work as a team physician, and I have a ex- I don't have too much experience even in eating disorders, but I have a feeling that in the team, especially coaches, might miss it uh, quite often, or maybe I don't know if it's like on purpose or just like lack of uh, knowledge or knowing in in a team. How do you see it? Who are the first people to kind of recognize that there is a problem? Is it family members or is it um, a coach, a physician, maybe other athletes? Do you like, what's your um, opinion or what have you seen? That is a loaded question and has definitely pulling <laughs> at my heartstrings because I think we always assume that it's certain sports, right? You're cross country, you're dancing, you're wrestling, you're cheerleading. And the literature pushes us in that direction. So it makes us so biased and it's actually harming what we're able to recognize in my opinion. And I see eating disorders in all sports, genders, and body sizes. And most of our coaches are not educated. Athletic trainers are outstanding. And 
It is one of my favorite professions. I can't say enough about athletic trainers because they are so intertwined with the athletes and with the team that I would say those are usually the first individuals to come to me and say, hey, I'm concerned that there's a problem. Um, they also don't get tons of information about eating disorders. You know, they're get, getting just kind of the tip of the iceberg about, oh, well, maybe they're not eating enough or maybe they miss a period. They, they don't actually get tons of education about clinical eating disorders. So me being at my school, I really think helps promote that. And now, oh, it's just outstanding. They, they recognize it. Then they know they can talk to me about it and they can talk to the athlete about it. And we do a lot of kind of coursework for it. So we'll have like meetings for it. I started an eating disorder, kind of like a meeting that goes every two weeks and we review some of the athletes and see how we can kind of create a multidisciplinary care for them. You know, then you have the surgeons that work with these athletes sometimes. You know, that's been a very big challenge for me. They'll see a stress fracture that needs hardware placed and nobody's asking them, why did you get the 10th stress fracture that you had? And now our orthopedic surgeons and I have a great relationship and they come to me and say, hey, this is not normal for a 22-year-old to have a pelvic stress fracture. Can you assess them? So I think understanding that maybe that's not their place to talk about it, but they need to know how to recognize it is crucial. And like you said, coaches, you know, I, I've struggled with some schools that I've worked on of like don't weigh them every single day for cross country athletes. Like, why are we doing this? Like, is this really that important? And I get the pushback and that just feeds the problem. And my last tangent here, forgive me, but if somebody has an ankle injury, we're very okay with keeping them out of sport. But if somebody has a mental health issue going on and we can't see it directly, Unfortunately, it's it's very missed by coaches and not accepted as time off that's warranted. And it breaks my heart. It's great what you're doing, that you're trying or doing already the multidisciplinary approach. And I, I have a, uh, I think it's good that athletes have different professionals to talk to because there might be reasons they don't want to discuss some things with their coaches maybe or maybe other athletes because, of course, there's competition. Um, so really good practices that you're putting in place. And a lot of them are on scholarships, right? You know, and they're afraid to say to say anything, you know. Definitely. What are the first signs of developing eating disorder? Can others around recognize eating disorders? As we become more aware of eating disorders in the athletic population, there's these new terms that have become very popular. So we have female athlete triad, relative energy deficiency in sport, also known as REDS, and then anorexia athletica is the newest one that I've heard. So my views on these are very controversial. I do not fit in. I personally feel in the sports medicine world when it comes to these terms. And you'll see a lot of controversy even between the terms. Some people are more on the female athlete side and some are people are more on the red side and they don't, they don't agree with everything. It's a little bit too much for me, but I personally believe that these terms just in general are actually causing a misjustice. And we're failing to recognize that most athletes labeled with one of these novel terms actually just has an overt eating disorder. You know, why are we even using popularized athlete like specific terms rather than calling 
you know, what it is. Like if it looks like a duck, if it swims like a duck and it quacks like a duck, it's probably just a duck, you know, but can I give you an example? And it might make a little bit more sense. I'm so passionate, but so most cases, the female athlete triad involve the idea of something called low energy availability or LEA. So low energy availability is essentially a result from the restriction of food intake that occurs along this continuum of severity. So somebody's exercising so much and not putting enough fuel in their system, you know, then over a long period of time, it become a problem. So this low energy availability causes delirious effects, which we were previously talking about, at least like, you know, the hormonal production. So resulting in an absence of your menstrual cycle or just changes in it in general, bone deficiencies, which can end up with stress fractures, immune di- dysfunction, GI distress, and a bunch of other things. So we really want to ask ourselves, you know, what is this low energy availability actually occurring from? And we've kind of broken it down into four four reasons. So you can have a clinical eating disorder in an athlete. An athlete can be intentionally trying to lose weight without any disordered eating. There can be an unintentional undereating. So my favorite example was a college student who literally only knew how to use a microwave. That was it. If it wasn't a microwave food, it wasn't going in their body. And <laughs> we worked on it. Um, but then there's also food scarcity, right? You know, un- under privileged children, you know, underprivileged teens, college, like that's happening, you know? So that's really when it's that unintentional under eating. And then the final reason, which really is what gets under my skin the most is this concept of disordered eating. It's extremely similar to eating disorders. You know, the main difference is the severity and the frequency. So the signs and the symptoms seen in an eating disorder are much more severe and frequent compared to that of disordered eating. That's kind of the idea we have. But my question is like, where do we draw the line? You know, if you have a female athlete that's not getting her period, has had multiple stress fractures, she's chronically fatigued, and this is due to her disordered eating and preoccupation with body image. I mean, I personally consider that really severe. You know, if she fails to return to normalcy by decreasing exercise or increasing calories, is that what we call an eating disorder? You know, we don't have a timeline for this stuff. You know, my last argument is I work with this population all the time, everything from five years old to 90 years old. So doing air, like Ironman, you know, these athletes know exactly what is going in and out of their bodies better than most of us will ever know. So I really struggle to believe that a cross country female athlete not getting her period, multiple stress fractures, who has to weigh in every single day and all of a sudden decided to go on a gluten-free diet doesn't have an overt eating disorder, but rather, you know, low energy availability. I'm just going to call BS on it. I just can't do it. (laughs) I really can't. I mean, it just, unless it's a financial or religious restriction or actually a lack of education, you know, these athletes, they don't go down this road for this long unless there's a problem. So is there like, um, when eating disorder and disordered eating what is usually used as a differential like how to differentiate i i totally get you when i don't know if it's even possible you know to make a difference but how is it usually done like what's what could you say on that that's a great question i think if i gave you my honest answer it'd probably get shunned from every sports community (laughs) in the world because i just don't believe it exists you know i do not i'm really it's so rare you know we have this thing called orthorexia which it's this 
kind of obsession with eating healthy, you know, like I want to go all plant-based or I want to do this to a point of they bring themselves so low in weight due to this, you know, decrease in nutritional, um, like I can't even think of the word I'm thinking today, but basically they, they become so low in weight and such a low energy availability due to not, you know, giving themselves enough nurturing, like through food and decreasing their exercise enough. But when we do that and we do it for such a long period of time, even when somebody's telling you to stop doing it, that to me is an eating disorder. Like that's, that's when you switch over. So it's so rare to like answer your question. We don't have anything laid out where there's no, this is severe. This is not, you know, if that was my daughter, stress fractures, not getting your period and you being on Instagram all the time, trying to look a certain way, that's, that is just my main focus. You know, that is going to be treated like an eating disorder. So I don't know. I don't know if that really is even something I want to consider. I try to avoid that term. I think we use that term okay. because as physicians, it makes us more comfortable. It's less of a, a less of a stigma if somebody's just disordered eating, not an eating disorder. Nobody wants to say I've had an eating disorder, right? Unless you're recovered and you're going to share your story, you know, it's a, it's a stigma to it. I can I can see yeah yeah I can I can see that definitely. So um, now we are moving on and. What are the first signs of a developing eating disorder? Um, can others, family members or friends around recognize the signs? I really look for the physical, physiological, and the behavioral changes. So remember that all eating disorders are not created equal. So expect different findings, like depending on the pathology. If somebody has anorexia nervosa versus bulimia nervosa, it might present different. So we really have to have our detective glasses on if we're concerned. So physical signs can include everything from weight fluctuations to amenorrhea, which is not getting your period, cyanotic like extremities, you know, edema, hair loss, something called uh, lanugo, which is like a very fine hair that's on the skin that can develop. It's actually created by your body naturally to help you keep warm. You know, slowing of a heart rate, low blood pressure, something called Russell signs, which is a marking on the dorsum of a hand from self-induced vomiting. You know, there's also swollen cheeks, salivary glands that can be enlarged. When you're thinking binge eating disorder, think diabetes, sleep apnea, osteoarthritis, and high blood pressure. You know, those are things that we don't usually think of in eating disorders, but eating disorders, again, have nothing to do with your body habitus. You know, they're, they're on a whole spectrum. Also look for those behavioral changes. And this is something that I usually endorse in parents because that secretive eating, that isolation with eating, eating rituals, I'll only eat my vegetables before my meat, you know, I'll only eat at these times or these foods, you know, any type of purging, dysfunctional exercise, restricting foods is a huge one, as we kind of already mentioned. Having a fear of eating in front of people and in addition to negative and obsessive thoughts about body shapes and sizes, you know, more subtle signs. This is interesting. Is this like food scarcity? Like if something is a safe food to the individual, they will be very reluctant to share that food. They'll want to buy multiple of them and always have them on hand, or they almost become very anxious if it's not around. And then sometimes people will excessively cook. Um, almost it's like this pleasure in food related activities, but they don't actually eat. And then all of a sudden changing from, you know, normal diet to a vegetarian, vegan, gluten-free or whatever new diets out there. 
And then the metabolic effects of malnutrition, you know, they can really dampen an individual on a physiological level. So you'll see sleep changes, sensitivity to cold, mood fluctuations, difficulty concentrating, you know, doing poorly in school. It's not uncommon to see depression, anxiety, ADHD. Sometimes things even look like a personality disorder. So when it comes to friends and family involvement, I always recommend advocating for the relationship and the individual. Please ask, show concern, offer help. So many people shy away and eating disorders are so isolating. It's essentially a person who does not even know they're like literally starving for support and love and guidance. Join to stop the worldwide pandemic of inactivity. Are you a medical doctor, physical therapist, personal trainer, or someone else helping individuals in making a change towards a healthier, better life? Imagine a behavior change tool designed for professionals like you to help your clients achieve better results and at the same time provide you with more income. Fibian is that tool. It offers an evidence-based way for health and wellness professionals to extend their services into coaching. The only thing your client needs to do is put a tiny Fibian device into their pocket for a week. No buttons, no apps, no Bluetooth connections, just a foolproof way to get scientifically accurate data easily. The device collects objective physical activity data from your client. Furthermore, it forms easy-to-understand visual feedback and lifestyle suggestions towards healthier choices that you can present and discuss with your client. An individual approach encourages and motivates clients to change their lifestyle patterns and gives you an opportunity to strengthen your expert status and distinguish from competition. Fibian helps you to educate and coach your clients through this change towards a more active and healthy life. Strengthen your expert status. Distinguish yourself from the competition. Order Fibian now at Fibian.com. That's F-I-B-O-N dot com. That's good advice. Thank you. Thank you you for for that. So you have said that your approach... Uh, seeks to understand the cause, adaptive function, and purpose that the eating disorder serves in each client without holding on to the past, but rather embracing the future. What do you see are the true causes behind uh, what you just, actually you already said a little bit that there is this um, craving for acceptance or something like that, but uh, is there anything else you'd like to bring out? I love this question. And I think society really makes eating disorders a disorder of control. You know, I I lose control, so I I have an eating disorder. And it's just not that simple. You know, I see the most complex eating disorders that you think some people could imagine. And eating disorders are really influenced by not only developmental, but social and biological processes, right? So on an environmental standpoint, everything from poor family dynamics, so a child looking for attention or, you know, trauma in the past to the pressures of social media. So we do live in that diet obsessed world. And, you know, if somebody has an occupation that's kind of based on their appearance, modeling, you know, being on television, sports, you know, all those types of things can definitely change that environment and lead to more likelihood of developing an eating disorder. But that's just one factor. You know, we actually presume that 40 to 60% of the risk of developing an eating disorder is due to genetic factors. You know, and then you have this metabolic level. So studies now are showing that the 
the gastrointestinal microbiota of people with anorexia nervosa is very different than those without. You know, they're actually missing certain bacteria. And then some, like some bodies are actually able to live nutritionally depleted longer than others. And we call this the cave person effect. And then you have the depression, anxiety, ADHD, PTSD, obsessive compulsive disorder. You know, these all maybe are contributing to developing eating disorder, but I'll also, you know, put this whole other approach on it. Sometimes those go away when somebody's nutritionally restored, you know, so we know that eating disorders decrease your neurotransmitters, your serotonin, your norepinephrine, all of those. And if those are depleted, you know, of course, someone's going to develop depression, anxiety, ADHD. So what came first, chicken or the egg? I don't know. It depends on the person. Yeah, I'd just like to uh, jump in and ask about the cave person. Uh, what is, is that like, did I understand correctly that uh, some people having less uh, energy available don't develop an eating disorder or, or the, uh, the symptoms? I guess they do still have the eating disorder. They don't have enough uh, energy, but is it that they are more... They're not likely to present the symptoms or how does this So the work? cave person effect is more of some people can bring their body to such a low weight and still function. It takes a lot longer for their body to kind of respond and they're they're capable one mind body and soul right of making themselves so thin and they can get through that probably because of the over controlled and the discipline and things like that but once you start to nutritionally deplete and you have that very low energy available the body's going to continue declining weight and then you almost slow down the metabolism you do slow down the metabolism you'll see a decrease in the blood pressure and this is just one of the most interesting things. And I wasn't even going to go down this road today because I wrote a blog on it. I could talk about it all day, but there's something called leptin and leptin we think of as our starvation hormone. So it's made by adipose tissue. So if you have a, a good adequate amount of adipose tissue and you go without food for, let's say 12 hours, leptin goes to your brain from the adipose tissue and it says, Hey, eat something like you're hungry, eat, replenish your body. So you'll go and you'll eat something. And then the leptin level will calm down. There's a lot of other things going on here too, ghrelin, all that, but I'm, I'm just going to stick with leptin. But what happens is when we lose so much weight and so much adipose tissue that we make less leptin. So it's one of the saddest things to see in recovery because as somebody's trying to recover, their leptin so low because they have no fat stores that they're actually not hungry. The body plays tricks on us. So that's where the cave person idea comes from is some of us need to go out in the middle of a famine and go have enough energy to find us food. And that is a genetic hardwiring. There's some people that are just capable of doing that. So some people can be nutritionally you know, depleted for an extensive period of time, their body can still function before they develop symptoms. Um, the symptoms are there, but to the point of where they just can't do it anymore until their body basically just says, I'm done. I don't know if that kind of explains it. That's so yes, interesting, isn't it? Oh, so interesting. It is interesting, really. So interesting. Uh, our bodies are really amazing mm -hmm. in many yes. ways. So uh, what do you see are the core components in a good recovery from a an eating disorder? So recovery from an eating disorder is so complex. You know, when I have a client who is ready to recover, um, and even sometimes when they're not, right? I mean, eating disorders are definitely a disorder of 
sometimes that individual just doesn't recognize it. And that's what makes them so challenging. They, they actually like to, to live in their eating disorder. You know, there's a really good book and it's usually the first book I tell patients with eating disorders who are trying to recognize that there's something going on called Life Without Ed. And it's by Jenny Schaefer and Ed stands for eating disorder, but it also stands for Ed, like somebody's name. So I love the analogy because an an eating disorder is almost exactly like a really bad relationship you just can't get out of. Like you keep going back, you know you need to stop talking to this person, but you just can't. So you know it's unhealthy for you, but you keep going back over and over and over. So I encourage my clients to you know, really name their eating disorder, you know, and depersonalize it. So when the eating disorder thoughts are kind of perplexing their brain and taking them over, depersonalize it. This is not them. They know this is not the behavior they want. So I say, okay, sit down, Ed, or sit down, Cruella, or margarita or whatever you want to call your eating disorder and separate yourself from them. So I really think understanding that idea that this is not who you want to be, this is not your normal brain talking to you is the first step in recovery. So once clients are ready to recover, I really want them to define to me what is recovery from them. You know, there's so much focus on like the scales always, like let's gain weight. And having somebody who's obsessed with losing weight to make that their goal, I mean, it's completely unreasonable to me. And that's just not the way I drive my practice. Like, do I want to focus on that? Yes, but I need to start with small wins. You know, is it being able to go to a restaurant and not looking at a menu before you go because you couldn't just go to the restaurant and be okay saying, oh, I'll just have that or eating in front of people. You know, if that's a small win for them, I start there. And then honestly, like the scale will change with time that their body will get better. You know, I have a lot of, a lot of clients that tell me that their therapist is focusing on how to motivate them and teaching them motivational skills. And I think it's almost funny, like how can you ask someone to motivate themselves if they don't even know what they're striving for? So writing down what recovery is, is just so important. You know, unfortunately, the eating disorder treatments, some of them really miss the concept because it's so scale focused, weight focused. And yes, like getting to a good weight above that ideal body weight is so important. But sometimes I feel like treatment change trades like one obsession for another obsession. So don't restrict calories and record your calories. But now you have to eat this many calories and this many times a day, like these exact foods, you know, it's just, it's a lot. Um, it's a lot. So I really just want to like have recovery incorporate everything, you know, the mind, the body, like spiritually, like everything. Cause that's the most success I see. You know, some, some clinicians are against fitness during recovery. And yes, there are some patients that cannot be physically active and they are on bed rest because they're at a certain type of sick. It's not more sick. It's just a different sick, but there's some that can use fitness to help them get better. My favorite example is, you know, somebody has been on an elliptical hours and hours a day to lose weight and they were chronically exhausted. And this was during their eating disorder, but now they like flip tires and they do burpees and they can lift like huge amounts of weights. Like to me, that's an accomplishment, you know? So I think figuring out the type of recovery that's best for my client is the most important. You know, we don't have a magic pill, so it's really just creating a framework of success for them. Yeah, finding everybody what suits for them and just 
getting out of the out of the eating disorder yeah, just like being physically yeah. active so, finding what's best for them it's like <laughs> it's the same idea we're going back, yeah back to the physical yes. activity uh so so uh how can those uh, who are close loved ones support the recovery of somebody who is going through a recovery from an eating disorder do you have some tips or advice Begin by not blaming yourself. You know, this is literally brings tears to my eyes every time I see a parent that I'm kind of educating for the first time or a spouse, you know, they feel so helpless and they don't understand why can't they just eat something? Like, why can't they, you know, and it's such a complex disease. So I think when they, they hear it, you know, discussed well laid out, like it kind of resonates a little bit, but it's a concept that's just so hard to understand. So I have them not blame themselves and, and just do the best they can. You know, again, they're so convoluted eating disorders that there's genetics, there's environment, you know, physiological, psychological, metabolic, and it's just outside of our control. You know, we can put them in the right direction, but you, you can't fix them, you know. And on average, it takes individuals five years before they get diagnosed with an eating disorder. That's a long time. That's like most college years for people or high school. So you know, if you're concerned, ask and like, keep asking, even if it's uncomfortable for you, you know, when we love people, we have to be uncomfortable, like to be happy, you have to be uncomfortable or you're just content. You know, the most common place I see eating disorders miss sadly is in the medical community. So the doctor that's telling, you know, somebody to lose weight or, oh, well, you know, just eat a little bit more, you know, ask for a second opinion. If you think it's necessary, like stand up for yourself, you're, you're allowed. And I see clients as young as 11 years old. You know, the sooner the individual is seen by an eating disorder specialist, the more likely they're, they're going to recover. And there's so many support groups out there designated for families, for friends. There's an amazing mom-to-mom group through the Eating Disorder Alliance. And, you know, there's just so many opportunities. Um, and the people that have created these support groups and these programs, they're very genuine. Like, they really want to help. So get out there and, you know, ask. Ask for an opinion from another professional. Uh, so, what do, what do you think we could what could we do better in our society generally, uh, and in the sports society to prevent problems with eating? You know, eat real food. Absolutely, <laughs> start there. You know, stop with all the trends, and the body is so self sufficient. You know, we probably don't need half of what we put into our body, all the supplements and all these other products, you know, just some food for thought. Like if we need to consume all this added stuff, maybe we're asking our body to do something that it's not made to do. You know, also we have been eating food since the beginning of time. You know, we're doing okay. You know, endorsing diets that restrict huge groups is just a terrible idea. You know, we need to stop promoting this unless there's a true medical reason. And we need to teach our children and our mothers and our friends, like we are all beautiful. Like we are all beautiful and every size, you know, every color, regardless of what we wear, what we do for a living, who we love, like, I, I don't care. We're all beautiful. And that message needs to start from, from the beginning. You know, and doctors need to get that message out too. This is not come to the doctor and be told what you're not doing. <laughs> needs to stop. Yeah, it would be great if the physicians could emphasize what you're already doing well and then maybe build on that. But just um, we might have listeners who, um, you know, deal with uh, 
patients or clients with eating disorders. So do you, do you use any tools to assess uh, uh, these uh, eating disorders or, or how do you screen or measure? Do you have some suggestions maybe others can use? Yeah, I try and focus on the function of exercise in my clients and I use a lot of screening tools. So one of my favorites is the compulsive exercise tool very well researched. Then there's the exercise and eating disorder questionnaire. It's like a Likert scale, has a male and females uh, versions of it. And then you have the exercise dependent scale. And that's not specific for eating disorders, but it definitely kind of assesses like what's going on here. Is exercise a healthy thing for this person or is it a bad thing? And if the exercise is contributing to the eating disorder, I usually and it's not contributing so much that it has to be completely stopped, I recommend rest for at least four weeks. And this is so such a cool concept. And Lisa, I feel like you just love science too. So there's like evidence that the bilateral prefrontal parietal network, so that's located in the middle frontal gyrus and the inferior parietal lobe of the brain, that needs to be reset because it's what like is acting to drive compulsive exercise. So what I'll do is I'll have patient like quote unquote reset their brain and not exercise for four weeks. And we write a contract and I hug them a lot because this is very hard for a compulsive exerciser. And I just say, please just trust me in four weeks. If you don't want to do this anymore, we won't, but I, I need you to see that this is a habit just like drugs or alcohol or cigarettes. You have to stop it. And then if we're able, we can reinitiate physical movement in a, in a more defined, like healthy way. So I'm a huge fan of something called safe exercise at every stage. And it's these guidelines that were developed. And I did some of the training courses with them and they're, they're outstanding, but it's a guideline to assist clinicians in managing exercise and return to athletes um, with eating disorders. So you can get more information though. I think their website, www.safeexerciseeverystage.com. I can give that to you at least to, to post, but I use these principles within the guidelines, just not only for athletes with eating disorders, but like everybody. Cause I think it's just such a, they just do such a good job on the intuitive physical movement, you know, really pursuing exercise for better reasons than weight loss. So this SEES, we'll call it for short, is a clinical decision-making tool, and it involves three major parts. So it begins by first you risk assess the athlete, you know, what's their risk of engaging in physical activity, and then you follow that by specific exercise recommendations, and then you end with the athlete returning to full competition. And it really helps clinicians place athletes into one of four risk categories, you know, A through D of like how risky is exercise for them. And then once you have them in a place of risk that they are able to engage in physical activity, you then do this like stepwise approach that they've created. It's, it's really well done and it's like highlighted in different colors and it just, I like it. It's helpful. And I think athletes like it too, because it gives them like a plan. And, and it's um, in, in a way objective screening. So maybe that's also kind of a baseline for Absolutely. them. For example, athletes. Um, I think we have come to the to the end of what we were going to talk about today. I'm so grateful that you had the time and you took the time to be here today. So um, just uh, I would like to ask from where can our listeners find you and um, yes, how can they reach out to you? Absolutely. So please send me an email. Um, I can give it to you or I can say it on here, whichever you prefer. I mean, uh, 
you, yeah, you can say it here and we will also have all your details in the description of the episode. Okay. So Dustin Narducci, so D-U-S-T-Y-N-A-R-D-U-C-C-I at usf.edu. That's the best way to get me through email. That's also on my website, docdesty.com. Again, a work in progress. Um, we're going to, you know, just uh, run away and do our podcast together. But uh, you can find me also on EMRAP, uh, right on Prime. And then I'm very involved in American Academy of Family Physicians. I do a lot of writing for them and editing, as well as the American Medical Society of Sports Medicine. So yeah, that's where you can find me. I kind of got off social media over the past few years. I really wanted to direct my energy, you know, more to where it was needed and um, kind of get out of that whole body image and, you know, diet obsessed culture and um, some opinions. I just really want to kind of keep around me. So maybe I'll get back someday. Um, we'll see. But uh, yeah, thank you so we'll much. See. It has been yeah. an absolute pleasure. I can't say how delightful you are to talk to. Uh, thank you so much. And uh, I also want to thank our listeners. Uh, and thank you, Dr. Narducci. And um, we will be back next week with a new topic. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining us this week on Physical Activity Researcher Podcast. If you like the show, make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing or following the show on Twitter. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you for your support. If you found value in the show, we would really appreciate a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever app you use. Or if you would, in a real old school way, simply tell a friend about the show. It would be a great help for us. We have a fantastic lineup of guests for forthcoming episodes, so be sure to tune in. Thank you all for your support and have a great day.